Welcome to the New Deal Podcast, July 2021. In an era filled with pressing issues, such as a global pandemic, an insurrection, an inequality, how does a dean of a higher education institution react and respond to pressing social issues? We'll be exploring some of those questions and more today on the New Deal Podcast. Jacob Easley II is Dean of the Graduate School of Education, Torah College, New York, New York. Torah is a private Jewish-sponsored institution, one of the largest in the United States. Prior to joining Torah College, he worked in various education and leadership positions across five different states and the District of Columbia. Dean Easley is most proud of his work as an advocate for equity and access for quality educational opportunities for all students. Further evidence of Dr. Easley's leadership contribution to the profession includes membership on the inaugural board of the Association for Advancing Quality in Educator Preparation, board member for the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, service as Region 1 representative for Teacher Education Council of State Colleges and Universities, immediate past president of the National Association of Home Scholars alumni, and as one of 10 nationally selected Martin Luther King scholars for the U.S. Department of Education. As an advocate for educator preparation, he worked with the University of Pittsburgh Jonestown alumni in Pennsylvania to advance equitable legislation. As a result, state law was changed to provide greater flexibility for program entry. More recently, Jacob has contributed a critical analysis on the professionalization of educator preparation. A Way Forward Towards Professionalizing Teacher Education, published the Education Renaissance Journal. He has also published several briefs and presented on topics of minority teacher recruitment and development. He has played an integral role in expanding access to educator preparation for historically underrepresented teacher aspirants in Connecticut and New York. Additionally, he is the author of the book, Audacity to Teach, the impact of leadership school reform in the urban context on educational innovations. As a scholar educator, Dr. Easley's research and advocacy focus on student success, teacher and school leader preparation, and the examination of educational policy on school effectiveness. He has also co-edited a book volume entitled Educational Accountability, International Perspectives on Challenges and Possibilities for School Leadership. Volume provides 12 different national contexts regarding accountability, policy, and practice, and their impact on school leadership, with contributions from researchers of the International Congress for School Effectiveness and Improvement Community. Dr. Easley, welcome. Well, thank you, Susan. You know, this has been a very um, interesting few years, uh, especially in terms of well, the world, and higher education and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking back on the pandemic, um, how and when did you learn that the college was going to go re- remote? Uh, and I have been a dean for just now con- concluding my third year. So I'm in my fourth year now, starting my fourth year. It's been a labor of love. It has been intense. It has been iterative. Uh, and it has been... Uh, I, I would say that it has been it has been one a, a, a operation of joy. We've had successes, not as large as I would like to have, but we have indeed had successes 
And what's most important about those successes is, is that they have not only informed the transformation of P-12 schools, but also of um, the university itself, meaning our education preparation programs. And so that leads us up to COVID. So we're working on all of those initiatives and preparing for a national accreditation all at the same time. And uh, we were successful in our national accreditation. And then there was COVID. So as you can imagine, being a New Yorker, and I will be the first to say, I and, and I told all of my friends, you know, I don't think that this is a, this is a virus that we're going to perhaps see here in the United States. Um, and then it happened. And it happened quickly and overnight. And I remember the day um, when we were told that we were going remote. Um, prior to that, though, I had meetings with my faculty and staff. And we preemptively began to think about um, emergency preparedness or management. So what would that look like um, if we were to think about alternate scheduling? So um, I would say in some ways we were at the forefront of creating alternate scheduling. And then of course we had the call saying the university was, was, was um, closing and going fully remote. At that point, we um, quickly had to consider how we would ensure academic continuity uh, and programming continuity. So there are two different things. The programming is all the wraparound services that we provide to candidates and that we provide to faculty to make sure that um, courses are running smoothly. And so this was a coordinated effort with the leadership of Toro College, um, senior, senior management, um, with all the deans and directors across the system. And in addition to that, um, within the Graduate School of Education, the executive team began to meet regularly and we pivoted our communication to faculty and staff by having what we call community meetings. Um, many of those were informational, but some were informational and, dis and discussion-based where individuals could provide input um, because, you know, it's, when, you, when you're facing something that's unprecedented, uh, you can't rely on a single individual to sort of be, be the mastermind um, of, of your operations because you're going to miss something. And even with your best efforts with, with smart people, with, with um, terminal degrees, all of us with PhDs and, and masters and other degrees working together, uh, you still miss things. So I think what was at the forefront was one, ensuring that there was continuity of academic programming and support for our students who we refer to as candidates. And what would those look like? Because we understood that many individuals began to um, face different levels of stress. So our population, about 85% of our teacher candidates are full-time employed. So many of our candidates work part-time, I mean, I'm sorry, pursue coursework part-time. So this created a challenge for us knowing that now, since many are employed, many are employed in school districts, they're now home with their children. Many of our faculty are home with their children. Um, and uh, so that created another level uh, of burden for individuals that they had not had to face before in addition to learning how to learn, um, and I, I'm not gonna say the individuals weren't familiar with online uh, engagement, but learning 
to learning how to learn over an extended period of time through the online environment was definitely a challenge. So we moved all of our courses to synchronous video conferencing. Um, for those courses that were our traditional face-to-face, -face, uh, we were fortunate because we already had several programs that were registered um, for fully online delivery. And many of our candidates had taken a combination of the two, but just not in, the, not in an intensive manner whereby they're meeting every week um, in real time on Zoom while their children are on Zoom sometimes or needing help with homework um, and they're in the house. In many cases, our candidates would tell you that being able to come to coursework on campus was a respite. It almost gave them sort of a, a feel of a academic environment, uh, adult environment where they could discuss issues around their profession with other adults away from the distractions of of, of, of childcare or having to take the dog out, things of that nature. And so they really appreciated um, the in-person. So that was one of the stresses that we saw. In addition to, of course, health-related issues and sometimes economic-related issues resulting from the um, pandemic. Great. Now, when you were talking about um, the, the, the automatic response, one of the things that you were talking about was um, the executive team in the community meetings. Is, is this the way that you had envisioned leadership when you began your career or is it something that evolved as this situation occurred? So I think we we're fortunate. For us, it was more of a pivot. So um, the, the structure of the leadership within the Graduate School of Education consists of the executive team, which um, is comprised of all of the deans, the assistant and associate deans and, and myself. Um, and then we have what we call academic council or the deans, so academic council or chairs meeting. That's where the chairs and all of the program chairs who, who are the direct um, um, leaders for each of the academic programs and the deans and the office of clinical practice and a few other individuals will meet at least month, will meet monthly, sometimes twice a month, sometimes once a month. And we would invite in relevant individuals um, to that meeting, perhaps from the certification office or the recruitment office. In addition to that meeting, which happened uh, monthly, we also used to produce a M&M, which is a monthly message for all the faculty and staff, along with a monthly um, communication to our candidates, which was the MyToro GSE. So in this instance with COVID, we pivoted because of the time, the turnaround time I would say was, was a major issue in being able to produce the communication and disseminate it in real time when sometimes information, we will receive information or vital information at the 11th hour and, and trying to fit everything in, um, in, in that written communication and then proofreading, et cetera. So what we did is we pivoted because we realized that um, unfortunately not many people were, not many people as I would like were actually reading those communications. So I was under the impression that because we were submitting a communication, individuals understood what was happening broadly within the school. Uh, and so pivoting to a community meeting, we use an outline format and I would present the big topics 
um, for each of which would have been a traditional communication in real time. And folks were able to ask questions. So of course we would pause at certain segments and say, are there any questions, points for clarification? Sometimes there will be some discussion. And then we polled everyone and said, would you like to continue in this format? And resoundingly the answer was yes. So we found that people felt, our, our faculty and staff felt engaged. And I think that's important. Um, that communication was for both faculty and staff. So you had faculty and staff meeting together um, um, once a month virtually for 45 minutes. So we made a commitment, only 45, at the end of 45 minutes, the meeting would end. But if anyone needed additional, had any additional discussion or clarification, I would hold back and um, the executive team and I will hold back and, and, and assist. So I think that was a positive. Um, so while the structures were there, which I think we were very um, fortunate, for us it was more of a pivot. You were talking about the experience during the pandemic and you were talking about the fact that you were not only thinking moving over to remote instruction um, and that you were trying to figure out how people were gonna come in, you were also dealing with accreditation um, which is huge even when there's not a pandemic, um, but you were also taking this on. Um, as a leader, did you feel that you were supported by the organization? Did you feel that your um, that it was all on you as a heroic leader or that this was a um, democratic collaborative? Um, how, how would you describe that experience? So, you know, this is one of those things I think most deans would tell you, yes, you feel as though um, you showed them uh, a significant um, portion of the burden. And rightfully so, I mean, you're the lead for that unit. Uh, so it is important that whether you are involved in the day-to-day -day of accreditation or preparation, and I would like to preferably call it continuous improvement, or um, if you are a bit more distant from it, but check in, it's still your responsibility to make sure that things are happening. So I think for us, um, this really spoke to my belief in, in shared governance and democratic spaces for decision-making. So there's no way that you can prepare a program well without collab collaborating with others. I mean, you really, you really discussed a, a huge sort of institutional change in terms of, um, one of the questions I have for you is that you know this turbulence that that occurred within the school? Um, do you see it informing um, instructional and institutional practices going forward? Do you think that those those um, things that we've learned and gained um, are going to be something that will really influence what happens next in terms of higher education and in terms of your program? Oh, most definitely. So I will give you a few updates. So one is um, emergency preparedness slash risk management. Um, so we began to think about if there were some catastrophe, we have a couple examples. Um, you know, there was Sandy, the hurricane that happened, um, power outage, other things. But what we did say is we, assuming we still have the um, connectivity. Connectivity could either be we have phones or we have um, um, as internet, some form of connection. What will, connectivity, what will we do? But what is the first activity? The first is the communication plan to all the faculty, staff, and to candidates. Of course, working with um, central leadership. And then what, what, what will we need to do week one, week two, and if things 
persist beyond week three, week three and beyond. So we have sort of a template of, of, of emergency preparedness in that regard um, in order to ensure there's continuity. So by and large, I think um, we did really well. It was a matter of being patient um, and persistent, but patient at the same time. So because of individuals, remember I told you earlier, um, coming out of accreditation, it was learning how to tell your story. If you don't let individuals know what you need, it's very difficult. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was a really enlightening conversation. Um, you've done really amazing things with the pandemic and beyond um, in terms of higher education. And I'm really very happy that you were able to join us today. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I, one thing I would say, I, I know I use the word pivot quite a bit, but I think this has really helped us to think about the evolution of the profession and particularly for us of, of Toro Graduate School of Education, but really of the profession. Um, because during this time, we have been faced with not only the pandemic, but also matters of racial injustice. And it's made us think about um, our work and the work of around equity. And, as, and I, I like that the, um, the, the focus of this podcast, because I think ethical practices are also important to remain at the fore. And this has really been an act of evolution. Um, sped up a bit yeah. <laughs> as a result of the, of, of the pandemic. I'm not saying that we weren't going to get there because we've been committed to continuous improvement, but I think it did speed up a lot of things for us. So again, thank you. And I thank really you. appreciate the opportunity. really stood out to me was when Dean Easley talked about um, how they really had a shared leadership this year and how important that was for moving the department forward and the organization forward. And I had recently read an article um, that just came out a few weeks ago and it had talked about this shift, you know, pulling all the members of your organization into decision making and, you know, working from a strengths-based approach where you're really looking for the strengths of you know, the people in your organization to help lift it up. And I think that even extends to the community a bit, which we've talked about, like the ethic of the community quite a bit in um, past podcasts, but this whole idea of, you know, really incorporating multiple voices and that the person sitting at the top is not always the one that is leading, that leadership can be anywhere and from anyone. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Taryn. I think, um, one of the most interesting pieces for me was um, kind of when Dr. Easley spoke about how some of the processes got modified, even in terms of turnkeying updates. Um, he spoke about kind of a departure from that conventional um, top-down kind of one-way messaging that happens in, in memos and lengthy communications to something more collaborative where it allowed stakeholders, he spoke about, um, faculty and administrative staff together um, in, in kind of roundtable meetings where it, it was a two-way communication. Um, and just something as simple as thinking about one-way communication versus two-way communication and what processes favor two-way communication. Um, you know, that really got me thinking about leadership in a, in a variety of contexts. And he seems super interested in understanding that there's, uh, you call them candidates, I believe. 
that what, what's the life of the candidates going to be like, and also what's the life of the faculty going to be like, and how can they use words that we've heard before about pivoting, but describe them in a very thoughtful kind of ways. Like here's how we have to turn. We didn't think it was going to hit New York, but it really hit New York very, very hard. And here's how we changed. And it was seemed like a very inclusive way of doing things. Dean easily made that pretty clear. I was impressed with his approach of, he said a couple of times, no matter what your experience is, no matter how long you've been doing something, you still miss something. And just his, his approach to, look, I don't know it all, um, despite all my experience and positions I've held and, and all those things he mentioned, you still miss something. And that speaks you know, to his leadership style as well. And, and what both of you, all of you have already said. And I thought he had a real interest going back to what Terrence said before in the ethic of the community, that the community really meant something to him. And of course, particularly in COVID and as well as dealing with accreditation at the same time, which was, had to be very, very challenging, focusing on the ethic of the community made a great deal of sense. And I think we've seen this with um, several people that we've interviewed so far, um, people who really felt um, that they were successful during the pandemic were really relying on community. They had um, people even outside of their school's community where they were relying on um, different people who were in the same field um, who were going through the same trials and tribulations that they were. Those connections really became paramount. Um, in terms of being able to survive this excessive turbulence that went on during the pandemic. And those same sensitivities that he showed as one of the leaders of, of you know, your institution, Susie, are going to be paramount as we shift, not back to what was, because we'll never get back to that exactly. It's going to be something somewhat in like what was, but not quite. And I think, you know, the lesson seems to me to be how do you create the most robust supportive community you can and that's the most multidimensional that you can? Because surely it's important in the short run, but it's even to the long run, next time something happens, not if, but when. Having that community and those relationships already there and nurtured and probably more expansively than we had heretofore thought because we've, been, we've never been through this. We, we know much more than we used to know. Maybe stuff we're not happy we know, but we know it, we have to act on. Yeah, so hopefully um, some thinking has been done about how we could apply our ability to, you know, how we adapted, how uh, Dr. Easley spoke about how the university adapted um, to the next, the next wave of turbulence, whatever that might be. Uh, we don't know what that will be yet. Um, and of course, um, for, for folks in K-12, you know, bringing students back after interrupted instructional time uh, brings about some, some anxiety, I think. Um, so, you know, hopefully being able to manage that, that turbulence and work our way through it uh, this summer and leading up into the fall. Yeah, and I think as we see the, hopefully we don't, but as we see a rise in the Delta variants, um, you know, it's going to hit people hard, even in, in institutes of higher education where people can be inoculated, not just for the people who aren't inoculated, but for the fact that they're dealing with young children who have not able to get the vaccines yet. So, you know, that means that these teachers are being exposed 
to classrooms full of potential children who have uh, had the, the, the Delta variant or any other variant that comes around. Um, and they can take it back into larger, higher institution uh, of learning where the meeting with other teachers who have also been exposed. So, you know, the idea that this turbulence has stopped um, may be short-sighted. So as we move forward, whether it be that or any other type of crisis that comes up, relying on these networks, having these things in place, having these senses of community, it just shows us how important it is. Um, and so it really shows that preparation for the future as we move forward in these uncertain times. <laughs> as, as you work through levels of turbulence and you see we're at a moderate to bordering one severe at times and earlier in the, in the pandemic, almost extreme uh, turbulence. I think one of the things we wonder is like we used to, we've talked a lot about resilience over the last few years and grit over the last few years, but maybe it's a new way, way of saying like, well, what does that mean in this context? So that would be like, what's the innovation we can get out of the turbulence rather than we can't, we can't cure this pandemic ourselves as educators, but we can say what, you know, how can we make ourselves more vigorous, robust, and innovative based on what we're experiencing so that we'll get some, what's the most good we can get out of this weird kind of problem we're in. Including what happens very unfortunately if the cases start rising as we go more indoors in the fall. So this is the part of the podcast we like to call, what's the big deal? where we take questions from viewers and listeners like you on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And we answer your questions with our wonderful panelists of New Deal experts. <laughs> so here are the questions for today. More and more scholars are arguing for a greater emphasis on ethics being taught in educational leadership programs. Um, do you think there will see a shift in stronger focus on ethics beyond the occasional mention of it in one or two graduate classes? Well, I think now with a focus on equity, um, uh, more and more the realization has hit that this country is, is not, does not provide an, an equal playing field for everyone. And I'm hoping that the focus on, on equity will be very strong in terms of the schools. It's something that has been ignored for a long time and, and needs to be focused on today. Yeah, I would agree, Joan. I mean, I just think that given what we've seen, and I'm going back the past four years, um, you know, and even the past year, I think now more than ever, we are seeing that there's an importance for ethical leadership, leadership that's focused on equity, that talks about it, teaches it, um, and prepares our leaders to be able to address it and take it to their schools to empower their, you know, their employees and their community when they're working with them. So I, I do think that that shift is happening more and more, that it's not just in theory that this is needed, but we're actually seeing it in action. Um, but I, I think that it just needs to continue even more. Our next question comes from New York. And the question is, will teachers who did their student teaching remotely really be ready for the classroom in September? I think the question is not, are they ready to be teachers, Susan? The question is, are people ready to be initial teachers? Are they ready to be first year teachers? 
And that's a different question than saying, boy, you're ready to just do the job because I don't think anybody first year is ready to do the job alone and isolate. You need a lot of support systems naturally because it's going to take years before people feel comfortable in, our, uh, in terms of working with groups and also in terms of content understanding. And, and maybe hearkening back to the earlier question on an emphasis uh, on thinking about ethics, ethical and equitable practices, um, you know, comes about that, that important notion of reflexive thinking, self-reflection. Um, so maybe that is a key um, co component, a key ingredient to uh, some of our um, pre-service and um, novice teachers uh, who, are, who are transitioning from, you know, this all remote, very contained specific experience to returning um for them it's not returning it's 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 innovating this 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 way of 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 teaching that that is conventional but to those folks it's it's new in, in a lot of ways uh so i think that exactly as as we said you know that professional community is so important um and and the necessary support and and also just thinking about what what this change means to them you panel of experts and that is what's the big deal thank you for joining us on the new deal podcast please see our website in the liner notes and be sure to join our email list